A few years ago, some of you might remember when vandals broke into the St. John's Church down on Mount Pleasant Pike and vandalized that old building. Uh, for those of you who don't know, St. John's Church is an antebellum structure down on Mount Pleasant Pike, not far from the Rattle and Snap Plantation. Uh, and it's a beautiful old building and it's surrounded by a really ancient cemetery. And some vandals broke into that place and broke the stained glass windows and smashed the organ and just did a lot of serious damage at the time. I got to tell you, we don't agree with the preaching or practice of things that have taken place in that old building. But even noting that, it was just sad to see a, a neat old place, an historic place like that, be vandalized and torn up, to be disrespected and abused. It was just sad to see it. I want to. I want you to think along that line. Something. Something that's valuable or precious, something special to be used and abused in a common sort of way. And I want to apply that notion, if you can picture that in your mind, I want to apply that notion to a beautiful Bible verse that is consistently abused by people in our world. The verse I have in mind might be one of the most known verses in all of the New Testament, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We want to talk about this verse this morning. We want to observe what it does say, and it is a beautiful verse. We want to observe what it does say, but then we also have to comment upon how it is shamefully abused by so many people in the religious world today. We want to talk simply about the maybe the most famous verse in the New Testament, John chapter 3, verse 16. We stop here just briefly to thank you all for being out on this Sunday morning. We're glad that we have privileges like this to come together, uh, to worship, to study. No one's interfering with us. I, I know I can speak with absolute certainty that none of you were challenged on your way to the church building this morning. No one confronted you or tried to resist you or stop you from doing what we're doing here today. Uh, we just we couldn't even imagine that sort of thing happening, could we? We have great liberty to worship God. It's not that way everywhere. And there are places where people wouldn't have the privilege of openly doing what we're doing here today. We shouldn't take this for granted. We should be grateful for the privilege and opportunity and, and of course, take advantage of these opportunities every time we can. Thank you for being here to be a part of this this morning. All right, you know the verse, and you know it very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. You know, we're, we're quickly moving into football season. Britt and I were talking about this just before services began. Uh, football getting underway. And when you watch a, a game on TV, very often in the stadium, you'll see someone holding up a sign that just simply says, John 3.16, uh, trying to draw attention to this verse. Well, it's a great verse. It's a very important verse. I want to suggest to you that there are some things that are necessarily implied in this verse. Now, you, you understand things that are implied. Things that are implied are, are things that are not directly stated, things that are not specifically argued, but they're there. Things implied. For instance, 
If Cindy at home says, the garbage can is full, what, what is she saying that? She's just stating a fact? Is it just a random observation? What's that about? The garbage can is full. No, what that implies is the garbage can is full and you need to carry it out, right? You need to carry the trash out. There's, a, there's something implied there, right? Well, there's some things implied in this famous verse that are, that, that are not developed or argued, but they are there for sure. For instance, this verse implies the existence of God. Notice it says, for God so loved the world. This is the same sort of thing that we read in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. All throughout the Bible, really, there's very little formal argumentation for the existence of God. But the whole Bible, and in fact, our very existence, is based upon the understanding that there is a God in heaven. That that God does exist. I believe that we can prove the existence of God. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had a lesson along that line. There's no doubt that there is a God in heaven. But very often in the scripture, in verses like this one, his existence is just implied to be understood. Uh, uh, It it is necessarily implied uh, throughout the Bible as it is here. For God so loved the world. So his existence is implied. But also the sinfulness of man is implied in this text too. Notice there's the danger of perishing. And when it speaks of the danger that men might perish, it implies that men are sinful and that sin deserves punishment. Again, that's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. For instance, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, it says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, The wages of sin is death. So all have sinned and the wages of sin is death. And so that idea about the sinfulness of man and the the potential punishment for his sins, those are just some things that are in this verse and really run all throughout the Scripture. Now, I want to suggest to you that while those things are necessarily implied, there are some other things in this verse that are absolutely directly stated. For instance... One of the things that's directly stated is God's love. And concerning God's love, we see that this passage talks about the magnitude of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You ever hear someone describing a a boy and girl, maybe on their wedding day, and they use that expression, they are so in love. Well, what, what that expression means is extreme, right? High measure. That boy and girl, they are so in love. Well, that's the kind of usage that we find here. God so loved the world. God loved us even when we did not deserve it. Look in Romans chapter 5 at verse 8. Romans 5 verse 8 says, uh, God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us. He loved us when we didn't deserve His love. Some people have mistakenly imagined that God loved us because we are so special. God loved us because we deserved His love. We're just such wonderful people 
that God really didn't have any option other than to love us. We just, we just really find wonderful people. That's just absolutely not true, right? God loved us while we were yet sinners. He loved us. He commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God's love is stated here. God so loved the world. And notice the manifestation of that love. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved us and gave his only begotten son. God wants everybody to be saved. In the text that Stephen read for us earlier in 2 Peter chapter uh, 3, verse 9, God is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish. And so he did something about that. He doesn't want anyone to perish, and so he did something so it's not necessary to perish. Now, Think about that for a minute. What if I said, I, I would like everyone here this morning to have a brand new car. That's my desire. My desire is that everybody here this morning could have a brand new car. Well, I might desire that, but I couldn't do anything about it. I mean, it's one thing to desire. It's another to do something about it. God desires all men to be saved, but he could do something about that. Uh, However, it was going to cost him his only begotten son. He wants all men to be saved, and he wants that so much. He, He loved the world so much that he was willing to send his own son to suffer that horrible death on the cross in order to make it possible. So the depth of his love and the manifestation of his love clearly seen. In Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 9, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Sin demands a prize. Justice demands a prize. We have sinned. And so there must be some payment for that sin. And God made the payment for the sin with the blood of his own son. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Think of the magnitude of God's love. And think of the manifestation in sending his son to die for us. But notice concerning God's love also that it is for whoever believes. There's an impartiality here. And that is so important. And I think sometimes we just take that for granted. But what if it was not so? What if the love of God was not for whoever, but it was only for certain select ones? And maybe you're not one. So only certain, God only loves certain people. He sent His only begotten Son for only select individuals to be saved from the punishment of sin. And I'm sorry to tell you, that you're not one of those select individuals. You're out. You're excluded. You, you do not have access to that. Can you imagine that? But wait a minute. There are some of our friends in the religious world who teach exactly that. Those who hold to the doctrines of John Calvin, sometimes we refer to them as Calvinists. They believe that only certain people are chosen for salvation and everybody else is excluded. 
Man, what a sad story that is. It's not so. And we've talked often about it. We know that it is not so. In Acts chapter 10, at verse 34, we remember when the Apostle Peter was called to the house of the Gentile man Cornelius. He was very dubious about going initially, but by a vision, he was persuaded that he should. And Peter opened his mouth, Acts 10, verse 34. When he got to Cornelius' house, he opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And so the salvation available through Jesus Christ is available for all men, whosoever can come. So there's some things plainly stated here, right? God loves us. Intense, deep love of God for mankind. So much so that he would send his own son to die to pay the price of sin. And whoever wants to can have the advantage of that. Isn't that amazing about the love of God? Talk about the love of God. This verse so powerfully describes the love of God. That's plainly stated in the verse, isn't it? But I want to tell you something else that's plainly stated in this verse. And that is that salvation is conditional. Salvation is conditional. You understand the idea of conditions. The idea of a condition is that you've got to do something to get something. Uh, I, I so often use the illustration about you could come to my house. Uh, come to my house. If you come to my house tomorrow and mow my grass, I'll pay you $20. And the kids say, $20? We're not mowing your grass for $20. It's going to cost you a lot more than that. I can remember back when my brother and I mowed a guy's yard. With push mowers, we had two little push mowers, and we mowed his. He had an acre lot, and we mowed his. We mowed his acre lot for three dollars. Well, you're not going to get that done these days for three dollars. You're not going to get it done for twenty dollars. Come to my house tomorrow and mow my grass. I'll pay you a thousand dollars. Oh, now, okay, now, now we're talking. Now, now you're suggesting something that's worthwhile pursuing. Come to my house, mow my grass, I'll give you a thousand dollars. What do you understand about that? You understand that there's a condition upon receiving the thousand dollars, right? Now, mow my grass is not worth a thousand dollars. I mean, you couldn't, you, you're not going to earn that thousand dollars by mowing my grass. That's still going to be a, a pretty crazy gift, right? But you understand that the offer is contingent upon you meeting the condition. Come to my house, mow my grass, right? We reason that way all the time. Uh, it's, it's not hard to understand. Well, that's the truth about salvation, too. Salvation, which is an amazing offer of God to us, made it possible by the shedding of His Son's own blood, it's still necessary for us to meet conditions in order for us to receive the, the, the benefit. In this verse, the condition is... Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, we're going to talk here in a minute about that belief and what's involved in that belief. We do not think that it means just simple acknowledgement of Jesus. We don't believe that. We're going to see in a minute that that's just not the case. But right now, we're not even arguing that. Even if it was just simply to acknowledge Jesus, if that's all that means. I don't think that's all that means, but if it was, all that means is you must simply acknowledge Jesus. That's still a condition, isn't it? Isn't that still a condition of salvation? 
This verse that people would like to use to say that there's nothing to do in order to be saved, it doesn't say that, does it? This verse says there is something to do to be saved. You have to believe on Jesus. Now again, I don't stress, we're going to develop that a little more fully as to what all that belief incorporates. But whatever it does incorporate, it is a condition of salvation. Do you get that? Notice, in fact, if you're there in John 3, just go to the end of the chapter. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Whoa. You believe or not. And if you don't believe, then you're not going to see life and you're going to suffer God's wrath. That, my friends, is a condition. All right. John 3.16, you know the verse, so famous, so, so well known. Some things implied concerning God's existence and man's sinfulness, but some, plain, some things plainly stated involving the depth of God's love and his manifestation of that love toward us for all who will come. And the fact that salvation is conditional. All right, now, having said that, The thing we really have to stress, unfortunately, because this passage is so commonly abused by people in the religious world, the thing that we have to do is to stress that faith-only salvation is not taught or implied in this famous verse. This is a, this, as we've said, this is a really beautiful verse of scripture. And it's just a shame that people have so often misused and abused this verse and of course that what they want to do with this is to to say that it teaches all you have to do is believe faith only salvation i've had people say to me that verse doesn't say one word about baptism you ever had someone say that concerning john 360 where's baptism it's not in there that verse doesn't say a single word about baptism which of course it does not we understand that But I'll tell you something else about the verse. The verse also doesn't say anything about confessing Jesus, does it? But Romans 10 verse 10 says, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. This verse doesn't say anything about confession, but I'll tell you something. The faith only people, the people who want to use this verse to teach faith only salvation, they ought to also say, well, yeah, you've got to confess Jesus. Well, this verse doesn't say anything about confessing Jesus either, does it? They're willing to accept the necessity of confession, but this verse doesn't talk about it. Something else this verse doesn't say anything about is repentance. But Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, Luke 13, verse 3. But this verse doesn't say anything about repentance. The thing they're wanting to exclude, of course, is baptism. And what they say is the verse doesn't mention baptism. Right, it doesn't. But it doesn't mention confession or repentance either. And there are a couple of rules of Bible study that we ought to stress right here. One of those rules is that anything that proves too much proves nothing at all. Right? If you try to prove that you don't have to be baptized based upon this verse, you've, proved, you've, you, you've overshot your mark. Because if you're going to use the verse that way to prove you don't have to be baptized, you could, then you're also proving that you don't have to repent or confess. And, you don't, and they don't want that. So if you, if you prove too much, you've proved nothing. You've overshot your mark. And the other rule, think about this. There's another rule of study which says 
we have to, we may have to do more, but never less than any one verse or passage teaches. Did you catch that? We may have to do more, but never less than any one verse or passage teaches. And that applies here. The New Testament is so plain that about faith only. And what it says is we are not saved by faith only. Excuse me, let me go back here. What it says is that we are not saved by faith only. Look in James chapter 2. And that, uh, that, of course, is the famous text about faith and works. You know it so well in James chapter 2. How often have we pointed out that the only place in all of the New Testament where faith only is found together is in James 2 verse 24. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. The New Testament plainly says that we're not saved by faith only. It says we're saved by faith but not by faith only. Notice here in this same chapter, James 2. James mentions three times in close succession that faith without works is dead. Faith alone is dead. Look at verse 17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Verse 20. Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. I'm going to tell you, you can't just, you just can't make it any plainer than that. That is just so plain, so easy to understand. So what is this believing? What, what is this, the one who believes in him? What is that then? Well, it's not just mere acknowledgement of Jesus. It's not just faith only. This is talking about saving faith, the kind of faith that saves. The kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that is coupled with obedience, right? Abundant examples of how saving faith is the kind of faith that is coupled with obedience found all throughout the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11 is a famous place where that is really drawn out. I just want to pick out two examples out of Hebrews chapter 11. One of them is about Noah. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, uh, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So what what did Noah do by faith? By faith he prepared an ark. I know that some of you have been up uh, to Kentucky and have visited that new exhibit up there where they have built a huge full-scale replica of Noah's Ark. I've not been. I'd like to go. But they say that that the immense size of it is just overwhelmingly impressive. Noah built that ark. And he built that ark without any modern tools or conveniences. He built that huge ark. But the text says he did it by faith. Faith led him to act. Faith coupled with obedience. Clearly seen in the case of Noah. One other example here in Hebrews 11. Look at verse 30. Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. You know the story of Jericho? You know how the children of Israel were told they must march around the city. 
Once each day for six days, seven times on the seventh day, blow the trumpets, shout, the walls will fall down. Well, they did, right? But notice, they had to believe that that would happen. That, that, now, that would not typically happen. I want to tell you, I could just imagine some guy there in, in, in Israel, among the Israelites saying, you want us to do what? March around the city and blow trumpets and shout and the walls will fall down? I don't believe it. I don't believe it and I'm not doing it. The Israelites did believe and they acted upon what they were instructed to do and the walls fall, fell down, right? But they had to have faith and they had to act upon their faith. And that story is just found over and over again through so many examples uh, in the scriptures. Many New Testament passages link faith and obedience. In our, in our Bible study this morning here in the auditorium, we were studying in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter to the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And so it's not just to acknowledge Jesus. It's not just to say that you believe in Jesus, but it is to do the will of the Father. When faith is linked with obedience, that is what saves. Well, again, there's a, here's a beautiful passage of Scripture. John chapter 3, verse 16. What it implies and teaches, beautiful, powerful, very important to us and our eternity Sadly, we have to talk about it because it is, it is so commonly abused by people trying to teach faith only. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. And we conclude our lesson with just asking a simple question. John 3.16, you know the verse. Almost everybody knows that verse. Have you acted upon what that verse teaches? God loves you. And he's made it possible for you to be saved and not suffer the eternal punishment that sin deserves. He made it possible through the blood of his own son, but you must act. Have you acted upon what God has done by his grace, made salvation possible? Have you acted upon that? The simple New Testament plan is here. Believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sin. If you've not done that, we hope you make that decision without delay. If you're a Christian already, but you slip back, we beg you to come to to return to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.